All right, look, anybody who wakes up and thinks, I want to write a musical, different kind of human being. That's not even a hot take, okay? That's about as lukewarm as takes get. And yes, I'm speaking primarily about myself, my friends, my colleagues. We all sort of know each other, though. Or at least we're all in each other's orbits in one huge network. I realized the other day that I'd be shocked to learn that any serious musical theater writer is more than two degrees of separation away from me at this point, a friend of a friend at the farthest. That said, there are the rich, famous ones up in the stratosphere whose names any musical theater fan knows. And then there are the ones like me, whose names you don't know yet. The thing is, musical theater is such an inherently collaborative art form. Even if you're writing book music and lyrics alone, you're constantly reaching out to your friends and colleagues for advice, feedback, or just encouragement, that at some point you spend so long in that echo chamber, you forget that's not what normal people talk about. One of my friends shared a post on Facebook a while back, the gist of which was, hey, don't forget, being a composer's cool. For every one of us, there are easily thousands of software engineers out there. What we do is rare. What we do is special. And it made me realize that as many millions of people as there are who love musical theater, most of them don't have a clue how their favorite shows started from a blank page, or even before that, from an idea. Hey, I'm Ryan Kerr, I use he, him pronouns, and this is the first episode of Before the Ball. That music you just heard is what's currently the opening song of Cinderella Boy, a new musical I've just started writing based on the beautiful novel of the same name by Christina Meister. I say currently because opening numbers are notoriously hard to get right and I fully expect it'll change somewhere down the line. Y'all, I have been waiting for so long to release this podcast. <laughs> I have had to buy new audio equipment, I've had to wait for contracts to be signed, Actually, there are a few reasons that are going to be a story for another episode entirely, at least one. I'm so excited it's finally alive, and I am so excited and thankful that you're here listening to come along on this journey with me. I wanted to start this podcast for a few reasons. For myself, I wanted to keep a diary of this process, to keep a record of what it was like. This is a big deal for me. This isn't the first musical I've written, but it is the first time I've done anything this ambitious, maybe as stupid. This is an enormous gamble with literally thousands of dollars on the line out of my own pocket, and the only way I won't have wasted that money is if I jump through a lot of hoops in a really short period of time. More on exactly what I mean by that in a couple episodes. I'm also doing this for accountability. I've always been a slow composer. Pissed my professors off in college and in grad school, actually. To make a bad thing worse, I have to work full-time while I'm writing, because if I don't buy cat food, my cats are just going to eat me in my sleep one night. So, publishing updates about my progress, I'm hoping, will keep me honest and working at a decent clip. But for all of you, the most exposure the average person has to the process of creating a new musical is Smash, and trust me, that doesn't count. I wanted to give you a chance to come along on the journey in real time, and take a look behind the curtain at what it takes, what happens, and what kind of lunatic decides it's a good idea. A bit about myself and how I got here. I grew up on land taken from the Kij Nation, now a little suburb of Los Angeles about half an hour south of downtown. The first CDs I ever listened to, and I mean on repeat all day every day, were the singles 1969 to 73 by The Carpenters and the 1993 LA cast recording of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Both of them made me who I am today, in different ways. Yeah, starting with the fact that I'm gay as fuck. Starting with the fact that they both fuse orchestral and rock music. Joseph is John Cameron's orchestrations of Andrew Lloyd Webber's music, so duh. And the Carpenters were that kind of early 70s mellowed out rock and roll that's like, embarrassingly white. 
It was really Joseph, though, and hearing Kelly Rabke narrating Joseph's story that solidified my love of storytelling. I could never get enough stories. My parents had to use books as a reward for things because anytime we'd go into a bookstore, I'd get stacks and stacks of books and then I'd just tear through them so fast that my parents were like, no, slow down, read them again. And then at some point in middle school, I started to realize I was gay. Surprise, surprise, he does musical theater and he's what? Super gay, but at the time, super closeted. And the way I really discovered my sexuality was also the only way I really felt any kind of safety expressing it. And that was online. Now, it wasn't chat rooms or forums or even porn. In fact, it's probably worse than all of those. I... I can't believe I'm about to commit this to the permanent record that is the internet. I discovered fanfiction. Oh, it gets better. Yes, long before we knew Joanne as the Grand High Transphobe, I discovered Harry Potter slash fanfiction. I shipped Harry and Draco so hard, y'all. Look, there are not a lot of hills I'm gonna die on, but I will go to my grave convinced and convincing anyone who will listen for more than two seconds that no two humans in that series are more passionately obsessed with each other over all seven years than Harry and Draco. And then the last book was finally published and we found out that one little scene of Draco sharing Harry's broomstick was all we were gonna get. I needed more. Fortunately, the seventh book put me out of my misery toward the end of my time in college. Around the same time, my good friend Sarah gave me another book, a trilogy of novels, The Last Herald Mage by Mercedes Lackey. This is high fantasy, knights, magic, bards, all that stuff, but with a gay main character. And not just incidentally gay either, his struggle to come out and accept and finally love himself is as central to the character and plot development as the evil wizards. And this was professionally published back in 1989, I want to say, back before things like on-demand book printing machines, back when publishing a novel was invariably a whole thing no matter who you were. I was shocked. It had never occurred to me that anyone would publish stories like this and that I wasn't alone in wanting to read them. This is why representation matters, right? And to this day, I still love that book. Literally at least every couple years, I go back and reread it because it is such a beautiful story. But once I knew this stuff was out there, there was no stopping me. My bookshelves are now packed with gay stuff. And I don't just mean the dirty stuff, though like, yes, there is plenty of that. Like, sidebar, speaking of, nothing infuriates me like C.S. Picot's Captive Prince trilogy. It is so good. It is such a perfectly crafted story, and it's another one I find myself rereading every year or two because I just love it so much. But there is so much explicit sex that's actually central to the plot and character development that literally no one but HBO could or would ever adapt it, and I'm not HBO. Which brings me back to what I guess is my biggest problem. I did musical theater through middle and high school, and ended up as music director at my high school because we were a tiny little math science school with 300 students and no resources, at least none that weren't already dedicated to the math science stuff. I'd been writing songs for a couple years at this point, and when the drama teacher, Deborah McVeigh, said, okay, what musical are we doing next year? I said, well, can I write one? And I love her. And I think she's a goddess on earth, but she's also kind of insane, sorry, not sorry, because she said, yeah, sure. Now this, was a hot mess. My friend Joanna introduced me to this novel, The Rich Shall Inherit by Elizabeth Adler. I didn't realize this episode was going to turn into my Goodreads list, but here we are. Now, depending on who you talk to, I guess it's easy to dismiss some of her books as checkout line paperback romances. But what attracted me to this novel was that it was part romance, part historical fiction, part mystery, part action suspense thriller. There was something for everybody, and I wanted to turn it into a musical. So I reached out to ask for permission, and she said, sure, and I'll see you there. So I spent every free moment of my senior year writing this thing. 
But I told you I'm a slow composer, right? And this is on top of AP classes, even some college classes, all my final projects, getting ready for college. My friends who are in the pit orchestra will all tell you with horror how I was still infamously printing new sheet music in the pit during intermission on closing night. Because of all this, we only ever rehearsed a scene or two at a time. We never actually ran through the entire show until it was on stage. It was four and a half hours long, y'all. I was mortified. It felt like it took a lifetime to write and at least six or seven to perform. Elizabeth Adler, from the bottom of my heart, thank you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> the whole thing gave me a really dangerous first taste, though, and it took over my life. At some point that year, I discovered NYU had a grad program in musical theater writing, and I decided that's what I'm doing with my life. Yeah, after I'd spent 10 years in math science schools, my parents were thrilled with this decision. But here I am, got through NYU by the skin of my teeth, honestly, which kind of made my problem worse because now that degree feels like a license to exercise the audacity I realized I had as a 17-year-old mounting his first full musical. It's gotten to the point that my partner will literally refuse to tell me about some new book he's read and loved, won't even mention its existence, because he knows if he lets me read it, my reaction is going to be, oh my god, this is a musical, I have to turn this into a musical. And especially now that I'm contractually obligated to be working on Cinderella Boy, it's like the creative equivalent of, we are not ordering takeout, there's food in the fridge, eat that first. I really haven't changed. The kid who read Harry Draco fanfiction is now an adult who devours any kind of queer web comics and web novels he can find. There's some great stories on a bunch of platforms out there, and one that quickly became one of my favorites is Cinderella Boy by Christina Meister. It's an adaptation of Cinderella about a gender-fluid high schooler. One thing I love, and I know I'll talk more about this later, is that it's not a story about trauma and tragedy, but one of trans excellence. Doesn't mean it's not dramatic and emotional as all hell, but this is about discovering gender euphoria. It's beautiful, and it's expertly crafted. I actually suspected even reading it for the first time that some part of her either consciously or subconsciously envisioned the story for the stage because I just knew that it would translate so easily. This gets into one of the weirdest questions in musical theater. Why should this be a musical? Unless you don't like musical theater, in which case why are you even still here listening to this, you've probably heard of a musical and thought, really, they turned that into a musical? Or the opposite, you've read a book or seen a movie at some point and thought, I wish I could see this on Broadway. Like I said, I get that thought way too often. But why a musical as opposed to a play without songs? Or a movie, or a TV show, or a ballet, or an opera? It's not enough to love a story so much that you want to see it come to life in front of you, it has to work in whatever medium you're translating it into. I remember in grad school, Robert Lee, brilliant lyricist and dramatist, was leading our lyric tutorial and told us to come to the next class with an example of something that doesn't sing. I'm making air quotes, you can't see that, obviously. Meaning a story that we can't imagine as a musical because why would these characters ever sing? Why would music ever be integral to the story of this world? Mine was the movie Inception. And I will be the first to admit, I am not always the sharpest tool in the shed. So I didn't see it coming that, of course, our next assignment next class was to envision it as a musical. Sure enough, I was able to come up with some ideas for how songs could tell the story of Inception. Does that mean it should ever actually be turned into a musical? Probably not. Please don't. But that leads to a tangential question, the real question in my opinion. How could music, specifically song, be used to tell this story? The good news is, you can answer that question kinda however you want. There are better and worse answers, but if you have an answer to that question, then it's really just up to your skill as a writer to demonstrate what it means. 
For example, sung through musicals and operas say, song is the entirety of communication in this story. An oversimplification of the weird but cool Brechtian answer is something like, the characters don't sing, but the actors sing to comment on the scene they just performed or are about to perform. Hedwig and the Angry Inch is sort of a middle ground that compresses the meta-ness down so that Hedwig is using her songs both as props in a concert and to reflect on her story. The most conventional answer, I think, boils down to something like when a character can't speak anymore, maybe because they don't know how to say it or because they physically can't say it, whatever the reason may be, they sing. And then when they can't sing anymore, they dance. A lot of times that gets paraphrased to the idea that when someone has really strong feelings, that's when they sing. But I think thinking of it that way leads to park and bark songs. Someone standing there for three minutes singing at the audience about I'm so sad or I love him so much or whatever. And yeah, the song can be really beautiful and emotional, but is it really moving the story forward? Are we learning anything or watching them change or do or decide something? I'm looking at you wishing you were somehow here again. Fortunately, Cinderella Boy is a conventional story. The most conventional of all, actually, a fairy tale. So I really see no need to go crazy with any avant-garde storytelling techniques here. Take Dex, the main character, for example. There's a lot he can't say, which is the crux of the story. I'm not who everybody thinks I am, and I don't know how to be who I really am to live the life I want because I'm scared everyone will hate me for it. Everything about this story was begging me to turn it into a musical. Reading Christina's bio on my webcomic app, it pointed out that Cinderella Boy had actually been published not just on the webcomic app, but as an actual book by an actual publisher. Not that a property not being professionally published has ever stopped me before. I highly recommend that you go check it out for yourself. Hard copies are a little on the pricey side, but the ebook is only about four bucks. I realize four bucks is still a lot for some people, in which case it is still posted on Tapas for free. You can get the link on my website. I think Christina still gets some ad revenue from there, so you're still being a good human being and supporting the artist. And it's not like this is the next Marvel movie or something where any spoilers are going to ruin your life, but this podcast is going to give away the entire story. And I'd really rather have you enjoy it as Christina meant it to be told, rather than piecing it together from me dissecting it here. And then the things I'm talking about here will make more sense too. Anyway, I reached out to the publisher to ask if the rights to adapt it for the stage were even available, and they said, yeah, send us a proposal. Little did I know, it would take two years to go from those first emails to signing an agreement. It took over a year and a half to settle on terms for the rights, but even before that, it took a solid six months to turn that proposal around to them. Because what do you send to an agent to say, hi, you've never heard of me before, but I know what I'm doing and you should trust me to adapt this novel? How do you convince the author that you're the one she should let do this? Because it's not just, I need permission to do this. From a business perspective, if I'm going to spend not just the money, but also the years to write and develop and shop this musical around, I want that permission to be exclusive. I want Christina to say, I want you to write the musical version of Cinderella Boy. Incidentally, that's also the reason I'm comfortable disclosing everything and sharing this process with you. Normally, musical theater writers are very hush-hush about their works in progress. Jason Robert Brown is one who's pretty famous for pulling out a really awesome song like Dreaming Wide Awake or Melinda and saying, hey, this is from a show I haven't written and hope to write someday, but I'm not telling you any more than that. And that's because if it's an adaptation of a story in the public domain or a story about something no musical has ever been written about before, there is nothing stopping another writer who hears about it saying, hey, that does sound like a good idea. Case in point, there are actually two musical theater adaptations of Gaston Leroux's novel, The Phantom of the Opera, that came out within a few years of each other. Only one actually had the permission and endorsement of the Leroux estate, and it is not the one with a giant chandelier that falls from the ceiling of the theater. In this case, though, spoiler alert, 
I am the only person allowed to adapt Cinderella Boy for the stage, at least for the duration of our agreement, so I don't have to worry about that. Am I concerned about other people taking the idea of trans Cinderella and running with it too? Yes and no. It's not that groundbreaking an idea. And if a trans writer thinks they can do trans Cinderella better than I can, which they probably could, by all means, the fairy tale is in the public domain. And you can totally draw parallels to other existing musicals like The Prom and Everybody's Talking About Jamie, both of which have been recently made into movies. So if anything, I'm the one who's late to the party and jumping on the bandwagon. Why do I think it's a good idea to do this anyway? I think the story is very different at its heart from The Prom and Jamie. I'd argue that the queer student going to prom in the prom is only a prop for the real story it's telling, which is about four adult busybodies inserting themselves into her conflict, whereas Cinderella Boy is entirely focused on Dex's coming out, transitioning, falling in love, and going to the ball. Sorry, homecoming dance. Jamie is focused on a high schooler going to the prom in drag, but drag isn't being transgender. And I'm not invalidating Jamie's struggle at all. Acceptance of his drag in this case is a proxy conversation for acceptance of his sexual orientation. But in the end, drag is an art form. It's a performance of gender. It's like playing music for me. If you told me I could never play piano again, you'd be denying a huge part of who I am and what I love and it would change my life forever. But you can't compare that to something as inherent and indelible as my gender, my skin color, my sexual orientation. Dex's story in Cinderella Boy is about who he is not something he does. And because of that, I think Cinderella Boy has the chance to accomplish something that the prom and Jamie both approach but fall short of. So yes, ultimately I did manage to convince them to grant me permission to be the one person to adapt Cinderella Boy for the stage. It was a hell of a challenge, and like I said, it took six months to put together something I hoped Christina and her publisher and their agents would be excited about, and another year for both sides to agree on how this will work for us moving forward. And I will tell you all about it next time on Before the Ball. Before I go though, as long as I have a handful of people listening to this, I want to take a second to highlight some of my favorite trans and non-binary artists in each episode. One of the first who comes to mind is Truth Future Bachman. They've had work performed all over the place, including the Public Theater and recently Lincoln Center. They are an incredible human being, a fantastic vocalist, and one of my favorite emerging musical theater writers. Their big project lately is called Shapeshifters, which already has one origin story prequel spinoff called Luna and the Star Bodies. Check them out on social media and catch their work live if you can. That's Truth Bachman, T-R-U-T-H-B-A-C-H-M-A-N. Check them out. One last thing before I go. All the demos I produce for Cinderella Boy will be included in a Spotify playlist for everyone to enjoy. Just go to cinderellaboy.com and follow the links. If you like the music, and I really hope you do, I'm also posting backing tracks you can download for free. Share videos of yourself singing the songs on Instagram and TikTok to Cinderella Boy Musical, and I'll share them on the feed. If you want the sheet music to play the songs yourself, slide into those DMs. Not what that means. You know what I mean, or contact me via the links on the site. Again, that's cinderellaboy.com and cinderellaboymusical on Instagram and TikTok. I have all kinds of stuff planned for future episodes of this podcast. I think most episodes will be similar to episode two, which is going to be about the first two songs that I sent off in the proposal and how they came to be. Then there'll be episodes like number three, where I walk you through the business and legal side of what it took to secure the rights. There will be songs, Q&As, interviews with the amazing people helping bring this new musical to life. Like I said, I'm just the writer. The show is nothing without the actors, the creative team, the staff, and of course the audience. If there's anything you want to know more about, I would love to hear from you. Just head to cinderellaboy.com or hit me up on Instagram or TikTok at Cinderella Boy Musical. See you next episode.